And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic Austria MotoGP is done, so it's Misano next, but we're here today to talk about the latest MotoGP news, such as Enea Bastianini getting the nod over Jorge Martin for the factory Ducati ride in 2023. Jorge Martin and Johan Zarco therefore stay at Pramac Ducati. Where is Darren Binder and where is Remy Gardner going in 2023? What about Miguel Oliveira? Big question mark. Will Raul Fernandez stay in MotoGP? What about Augusto Fernandez? More importantly, particularly to me and so many other people than all of the above, who is going to ride in Repsol Honda Colours at HRC next year? Toby Moody here with Simon Patterson and Valentin Harunchi to talk all this through. I'm going to start off with you, Simon. You voted for Jorge Martin to get the factory Ducati ride last time we talked about it. It's gone to Bastianini. I think, actually, even though you voted for the Spaniard, you might be happy for the Italian. Have I got that right? Yeah, the the last two races have changed my opinion. Um, the fact that Bastianini has, has had the beating of Martin the last two rounds. Uh, the fact that he outperformed him head and shoulders at Silverstone, even after losing a wing earlier on in the race whenever Martin made contact with him. Then the fact that we went to Austria, it looked again like Bastianini was faster. He had a mechanical where he wasn't able to finish the race and prove it. But then Jorge Martin did something really stupid and crashed making a lunge on a factory Ducati, the, the seat that he was trying to secure. Um, and I, I think, I still believe that Martin's faster, but right now, I think given the situation at Ducati and the fact that uh, the fact that their money is on Peko Bagnaya and not on either of who was going to get the second seat, really, I think the safe, the safe pair of hands to hand things over to is Enea Bastianini. Uh, Val, you and I voted, as it were, on a little podcast vote for Bastianini. So uh, we, we we got that little prize of a gummy bear or whatever it was on the table. Um, do you think he'll flourish? Maybe. Uh, that's that's a that's a really hard question. I'm, I'm not sure. <laughs> what I can say is that I like the decision. I like the pick. I think it is on the balance of things the correct choice. Even though I am sympathetic to the arguments for why. Martin should have been in the consideration and if he got it it would have made sense to me but I think the, the more the season wore on the more it and it just made sense he made increasingly he made increasing sense at the Red Bull ring even though he broke the front of his bike against the curb but before that he qualified on pole showing that there is certain progress when it comes to Saturday which is the one glaring glaring in a bastianini weakness and he also makes sense to me because he's a bit of a different profile to banyaya and what you get from from the weekend if that makes any sense with banyaya i i still think he's more impressive on saturdays than on sundays and i think the same is true for jorge martin but with bastianini is absolutely the other way around so in partnering banyaya and bastianini you get to two fairly different riders. I mean, obviously, Banyaya and Martin aren't, aren't all that similar, but you can kind of see how with Mart- as the Martin's development goes on, as it currently is, he's like an earlier version of Banyaya right now, if that makes any sense. <laughs> yeah, I'll go with that. I'll go with that. Um, he might have hit the nail on the head there, Simon. Yeah, you're right. Um, but to me, that that kind of, I don't know, I, I, I still feel like Ducati are kind of hedging all their bets on Bagnaya. 
Like they think that they've got a championship contender there and that this decision wasn't really made with the best intentions of any other writer's championship possibilities, potential in mind. It was made with sort of placating the number one. And I don't think Bagnaia is a number one. Yeah, but he is really at the moment. Uh, number ones win championships, Toby. They don't <sighs> fold whenever it comes to crunch time. But he's the, he's the best they've got here and now on Monday, the 29th of August, with, with data, with yes. data. The, the best they've got. Yeah, you know, he is. But the best they've got might not be good enough. And that's not a reason to placate the best they've got to continue. Okay. Yeah. I can see where you're coming from. Yeah. Yeah. They, they could do better, but it's what they've got is what you're saying. That's not the Martin versus Bastianini question at this point. And that's the question of why earlier in the season, Ducati didn't go all out for Fabio or Joan Mir when both are on the market. For me, that's... Well, for me, yeah. the, the fundamental issue is why Ducati gave Bagnaia a championship, uh, an extension before the season even started. Which is something we've touched on before. I mean, he would have had one now. Yeah, he, he probably, probably would have. He probably like, we, we would have, have, yes. Yeah. But... Um, yeah, doing it before the championship started to me was a mistake. Yeah. I think that's something we've we've touched upon before, um, and it, it just—I don't know—it it, it doesn't feel like there's much in the way of cohesive management at Ducati. Yeah, I guess. But when you have eight riders, you—I think you're under pressure to use the resources you already have to put into them. Yeah, this is yeah. going to be in. This is going to be an F1 analogy, which the readers of the, or the, the listeners of this podcast will absolutely love. But there's always been a feeling in F1 that Red Bull feels pressure to make use of Red Bull drivers rather than hiring from the outside because of how much Red Bull spends on the academy and talent development program. And I think there is, there's got to be something similar with Ducati, where if you have so many riders under your wing in MotoGP, if none of them are good enough to be in your factory team, then what are you even doing? I have a strong feeling that Red Bull forcing their own talent to the top above the expense of all else is something we're going to touch upon in a few minutes. But um, that that's kind of... Yeah, yeah, I I don't think having eight bikes in the grid does Ducati the favours that everyone thinks it does. Because it divides attention, it divides focus, it creates all of this sort of weird situation that they're in right now. Um, I, I don't think it's the... Yeah, I think they'd be a slicker operation if they only had six bikes. Yeah, and uh, I, I can say exactly see your point, but then, of course, there's the people who never go to the races who are the commercial department, and they sell bikes. So they're getting income. I don't know what the income they get from their major sponsor in the shape of Livono, uh, but that arguably isn't what they got from Philip Morris in the good old days. Um, so the commercial aspect is there, and I know that Ducati, they get the money up front kind of by the end of January so the money's in their bank yeah yeah let's you know make that abundantly clear Toby whenever you say the job is to sell bikes that includes MotoGP race bikes exactly because they're well paid for yeah. selling those bikes Absolutely. exactly I think it's six or seven or so million uh, so and then you have to give and, them back at the end of the year and they will win the manufacturers championship they will win Who the manufacturers cares? championship this year <laughs> and then next year too I, uh, yeah but I when know. you work I mean, in a team maybe a crowning, little bit crowning about winning the manufacturers championship is something you do when you haven't won riders championships That's absolutely correct that is absolutely true yeah <laughs> when you do win a constructors manufacturers championship it, it is quite cool when you're in the team but from the outside, it's it's a different view. It's a very different view. Uh, so Jorge Martin and Johan Zarco, they stay untouched at Pramac Ducati. The question is, or I suppose what Jorge Martin has got to do, is to stop being the wild child and keep the thing to the flag. And then I think he will flower. He's just got to... He's got to... It, there's so much in common with 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 Mark Marquez. Mark Marquez was quicker. He got to the finish more often, and he was arguably on a better bike when he came into the big class. And I think he's a better rider. Full stop. You know, but it's like Colin McRae. If you're a bit older listening to this, I always call it the Colin McRae. Just went off, went off, went off, went off. And when he came back a bit, then it all came together. But more often than not, he did go off or have a bit of bad luck. So let's see how Martin gets on next year. Uh, Val. So when they announced Mark, so when they announced Bastianini and when Pramac announced the Martin Zarco lineup for 2023, I think 
I'm pretty sure I wasn't the only one with the with the question mark of was this even done with Martin's blessing? Did Martin does Martin at all like what happened here? Is she or is he just going to be completely quiet about it and barely acknowledge it? And it's bit again, this is again an F1 thing, but if you followed the Oscar Piastri situation at all, what clued people off to the fact that something was wrong there was that when Alpine announced him, there was no quote from Piastri and no acknowledgement from him on social media before he went to social media and said, I don't want, do not want to drive for that, for that team next year. But no, Martin will ride for Pramac in, in 2023. And he did acknowledge it on social media, which I think he replied to the Pramac Instagram post. And I think Pramac, knowing that a lot of people will have noticed that he's not been too loud about it. Pramac posted that reply up in a in a subsequent Instagram post, probably just to ensure people like, yeah, he's on board. He's okay with this. Um, it's going to sting. It's really going to sting. And I, I wonder, you know, no, seeing in the news of the Bastinini promotion that he indeed does have the two-year deal, which suggests to me that that second Ducati ride is closed off until the end of 2024. I think it's a it's a, going to be a really interesting question to put to Martin, whether he's expected whether he's open to waiting that long, and I don't know there there might be another option as we've alluded to before, and he he may very well still feel that that works right was rightfully his even if Bastianini is outscoring him this season Martin has leaned on the argument that it's two different packages and two different circumstances and injuries and all that. So it's it, it's very interesting how he'll take it. Very, very interesting to me. And the risk that Ducati are taking here to me is, so I, I while I think they might not have taken the decision with necessarily the best reason, I think that it's probably the smart decision for Martin because as Toby alluded to, I think a little bit more time to settle and, and find where the limit is will do him no harm. But I do still think that he's talented, super, super talented. And the risk that Ducati take now is that in a year's time, when we come back to negotiations for a new contract, he's settled into a good place. He's winning races. He looks fast. He looks comfortable. And he gets snatched up by someone else. Um, that is the, the risk that they take. Uh, we know that there will be at least one factory seat available at the end of next year, Franco Morbidelli's. Um, and if his current form continues, you would expect that he won't retain that seat. Um, there will be movement. And and Ducati have essentially put Martin onto the open market in a year's time. And therefore, he might go to do the second ride at Repsol Honda. No. 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 Why no, not? No, no, no. The second Repsol yeah. Honda ride is, is sort of... But for how long? Two years. He's won me as a world champion. He will take a two-year deal and nothing else. There's no chance they'll they'll give Marty, uh, John Mir a, a one year deal. No, 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 no. If so, so he's now he's now got two and a half years remaining on a Pramac Ducati. Not necessarily. I think he'll kick Martin all of a one year deal. Yeah, it'll yeah. be one plus one. Some sort I mean, of we, option. We, we don't know. It might. Yeah, it's probably is a one plus one. I don't think Martin would agree to two years on a Pramac. Like, no. I'm, I'm not so sure. Not so, when there are factory rides yeah. potentially available yeah. in a year's time. I would like to see him on a Repsol under that. <laughs> The thing is, I would love to see him in a Repsol Honda, but I'd love to see Juan Mir on it more because I think it's going to suit his riding style to a T. But, you know... I currently wouldn't want to see anybody on the Repsol Honda. <laughs> well, under the current Repsol Honda, that's a fair point. But the the other thing that, that you know maybe Martinez hedging his bets on is we... Okay, everything is looking really good for Mark Marquez to come back, but there there is still a little corner of some people's minds in the paddock where they're thinking, what if he doesn't? Exactly. Will there be a Repsol Honda seat made available? What what if it doesn't work? Um, and and that will sort of I would imagine that's something that Martin's management is sort of you know quiet word pat in the back. You never know. You might be a Repsol Honda rider in a year's time. Just bear with it. Or they do some kind of quasi soft agreement with HRC. You know, if there is a space after Juan Mir, we're first in the queue. That's what I'd do. Just in case, as you say, Mark doesn't work. And the art for whatever reason. I mean, he could fall yeah. off again. God forbid. No, it's, it's not even that. It doesn't like that. It doesn't even have to be that he can't ride. He's just given everything that Mark said. What if he comes back and he just finishes sixth, seventh, eighth, sixth, yeah, seventh, yeah. eighth, 
And yeah. a year of that, and he decides, nah, that's enough. Don't want any more of that. Mark sounds like somebody who could decide that's enough, finishing sixth, seventh, or eighth. Or he could, or he could really screw Jorge Martin and go talk to Factor Ducati. Yeah, yeah. You know, that then everyone's buggered. Yeah, this wasn't in the podcast plan, but Mark Marquez's visit to the Red Bull ring contained an interview with Spanish broadcaster Zone. Basically, what Mark said in that interview indicated that he will look at options outside of Honda after 2024, assuming his body is all right. And, and assuming his bike doesn't get any better. Yes. Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense to me because while Honda obviously has stuck by him and been, according to Mark, very understanding and all that in his time of need and his time of injury, this is a results business and that's not a results bike right now. And Mark, I think, is all too keenly aware now that he doesn't have that many seasons left to wait around for a package that can help him add to the to the world titles. He did also say, if I have to go through another major, big operation, time away, races, not riding, I'm not going to do it. This is my last big mountain of injury that I'm going to climb to force me, to, to to come back to the sport. If if God forbid he injures himself again, yeah, he's going to go. Oh, I'm not going to go through that again. Apparently, he can't have another injury in that arm. So mm. four is apparently the limit. So mm. that's a bit of a worry. That's a bit of a worry. So uh, those two uh, will stay at Pramac Ducati. Darren Binder, Remy Gardner. Where are they going to go into 2023? Um, we've heard a lot from Remy. Um, he's grown not just on the bike, but grown in the press office, I would call it, in the column inches this year as speaking a reasonable, a very reasonable amount of common sense. Um, he, sp- he shoots from the hip. The Australian Southern Hemisphere rugby factor, I call it, is very much there with him. Um there's still too many people in MotoGP and some people are going to have to bump off and that may well be Remy and Darren to start with. Val? Yeah, so the, the Darren thing has been anticipated for a while. He's had a, a a decent season given the fact that I think a lot of still remain very unconvinced that he should have been on the grid in the first place just based off his Moto3 record. I don't think that's unfair to say anymore, even if he's had a better season than anticipated. I think it's fair enough to say that. So I think there's a realization there from everybody involved that moving down to Moto2 with a, with a good team is probably logical, all things considered. And I think that's been long anticipated. In Remy's case, it came out as a bit of a shock during the, the Red Bull Ring weekends that having looked very much set to retain the Tech 3 ride that is now the Gas Gas ride, uh, suddenly he's not retaining anything and it looks like he's all of a sudden on a job market and very unhappy with how KTM has dealt with it. There were warning signs earlier in the season. Firstly, there was just a big stretch where Remy just wasn't very happy and quite public about being unhappy with the, with the package and the support from KTM and all that. And KTM bosses probably won't have loved that. Yeah, we love it because we like it when riders are honest and outspoken to us about what the problem is and what they want. And we don't think that employee uh, employers should take that against them, should hold that against them, but sometimes they do. But potentially the bigger issue is that there's a, I guess, a mini rift, or at least there was a mini rift. I, I wouldn't call it mini. There was a rift between uh, Remy's manager, Paco Sanchez, who also represents Juan Mia. And KTM, to the point where KTM boss, uh, was it uh, Stefan Pierre, wasn't it? No, Stephen it was, was Pitbuyer, who described oh, it was, it was MotoGP Pitt managers Pitt. as worse okay, than COVID. Yeah. So, yeah. Buyer absolutely gave it the, the two barrels in discussing Paco Sanchez personally a few months ago. And when that happens, you can never be too sure about a renewal after that if it, if it, if it came to this. It, it goes to what we alluded to earlier in the conversation, Val, what you said about Red Bull and F1 uh, trying to push Red Bull talent through. Um, the, the rumor is that 
with Miguel Oliveira, who was offered that Tech 3 seat again last weekend, um, now all but set to go on or, to Arnef Aprilia. Um, and with the bridges not just burned but bombed to the ground with uh, Raul Fernandez, um, it seems like they're going to promote Moto 2 Championship leader Augusto Fernandez to Moto GP, seemingly out of nowhere really, given the fact that they've got a Moto2 champion um, already in the seat, in the form of Remy Gardner. Like, it just, it feels like promoting talent for the sake of promoting talent, and if they're only going to give every rider that they promote six months to find their place whenever they move up, then they're very soon going to have no riders left. Because you just, you can't stick a rider in a MotoGP bike, give them half a season's races, and say, okay, you're not good enough, bye. You're right. It's just not going to work. Remy's been, like, I wouldn't say Remy's had an excellent season because an excellent season would have been basically running with Brad and Miguel. But Remy has had a good enough season, especially relative to expectations and relative to the fact that he's been injured early on in the in the preseason, that this does not feel entirely performance-based. Or and, and he is not he is not far away from running close to Miguel Oliveira most weekends at the minute. Especially in times of one lap pace. He's not a million miles away. Apart from the Red Bull ring where he was clearly just a bit like I think he I yeah. think his head is gone at this point because I don't think he expected that. Yeah. Um so we don't know where he'll go now because earlier in the season when he talked about going elsewhere, he mentioned superbikes, but it's it's all well and good to say superbikes, but it's not like there's fifteen seats in world superbikes just waiting for a MotoGP rider to well, there's there's six seats in superbikes that are competitive yeah. so most of them are filled already it was a long time ago but it's not a dirty word to go from the top class to the middle class Loris Caparossi he won a 500 race and then went back into 250 and won the 250 title so if you know if if a Remy or somebody similar could do that it's it's a massive Screw you moment. Massive. And then you're holding all the cards. How old's Remy off the top of my head? 24, 25? Mid-20s. A little bit older than some of the... So, so yeah. you're 28 and you come back. 26, 7, 8 and you come back. The, you don't come back. You don't come back anymore. You don't come back. That's the problem. <laughs> you don't the, come the, back the nature of the championship has changed. The nature <laughs> of the championship in regards being able to step down and up, up and down between classes... Um, I think was permanently altered, irrevocably altered, the day that there was a Moto three age limit brought in. That, that and, and now again uh, this week, the fact that we're going to sprint races for one Grand Prix class and not for the other two, there has been a us and them system, a, a tiered system created where the only objective is to be a Moto GP rider and everything else is a stepping stone. Being a career two fifty or one two five rider, those days are gone. They've, they've been destroyed. And also, just it's important to note, I mean, for for Darren, going down to Moto2, there's still a lot he can prove there. There's still a point he can prove there. Remy already won the Moto2 title. Won it with the... With the I, 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 don't, I, don't think, I don't think there's any case he can make again. And whatever case he would have to make, he will not have a ride as good as the KTM IO ride that took him to the title mm. last year. Agreed. Agreed. I mean, Carmelo's in a nightmare here because he's losing bikes out of the grid and he's got even more people trying to stay into the and get into the top class. It's not even embarrassment of riches. It's difficult, to say the least. Yeah. Mm, okay. And it, it really sucks for Remy. It really sucks. And I think I speak for... This might be the official stance of the podcast. Might not be. It might just be my stance. We like Remy Gardner yep. a fair bit. Yep. We had yep. him on the podcast earlier this this year. We enjoyed it tremendously. He's a he's a major asset to the MotoGP paddock. But the truth of the matter is, is this is absolute top-line motorcycle racing. And unless you prove yourself absolutely indispensable, there will always be somebody who, if something happens, if there's some sort of outside reason there will always be somebody to replace you with. I also rate Augusto Fernandez. I think Augusto Fernandez is quite good. So I don't like this move particularly. I don't think Remy deserves ditching. But if KTM has been unhappy with something from Remy's side, I certainly see how they have other options. And it's, you know, it's, it's unfortunate, but that's, you know, 
that's the way it is. And and the other nature of this being a business whose job is to deliver entertainment is that Dorna love Jack Miller, love working with Jack Miller, love making videos and features and promos with Jack Miller, and he will always be the number one Aussie as far as they're concerned, and that does nothing to, to help protect or secure a spot for Remy either. That, that essentially means he doesn't have that little bit of a safety net that some other writers, some, some other nationalities might have in this circumstance. If, if this was the only British writer in the grid in this situation... Dorna would be pulling strings in the background. Yeah. That won't happen here. Uh, spot on, Simon. It's not just about the racing. It's not just about where you finish and what your lap time is on a Saturday afternoon or where your race position will be on a Saturday afternoon. No pun intended. So it, it, it is the marketing factor. Um, there are so many similarities here, and Val, you'll see this, with the Red Bull Junior car driving program that... They go into what was Toro Rosso. It's now Alpha Tauri, yeah. and and then somebody gets fired, and you and and, and the press, the media, the outside world go. But what are you doing that for? Whoa, whoa, whoa! Hang on a minute. And people have been hurt, but there's. I mean, Val, there's been twenty of those drivers coming to Formula One. Off the top of my head, that's a bit of a wild guess. Maybe fifteen. And when they get it right, they get it beyond spot on right. He's called Max Verstappen. Yeah. Um. But there's a lot of non-Max Verstappens to get to a Max Verstappen. <laughs> you've hit the nail on the head, Toby. Everyone is churning. They're churning through their talents to find a Verstappen no. the same way as others would churn through their talents to find a Marquez. Uh, and that's why, no, it doesn't matter how talented you are or how many championships you've won or whatever. You get half a season to prove yourself in MotoGP. And if you're not next level talent good enough, we'll see you later. We'll find someone else who might be. So... Here's here's the the big difference to the to the Red Bull situation because there is obviously similarity, but there's also a, a really a couple of really key differences. One is that I think unlike much of the the KTM Thailand pipeline, Verstappen when he joined Formula One first, and then when he joined Red Bull, he always had a bit of leverage because there were always going to be other employers for him. Uh, Mercedes was always circling, so Red Bull basically was more or less forced to do what it did in both cases, in both bringing him into F1 at Super Young and in promoting him to Red Bull and sidelining Daniel Kvyat. And, you know, both of those cases, both of those decisions have worked out completely. But the second thing, and the thing that I think is more relevant, is Red Bull is in a position where it's winning races and championships. KTM is not there. Not there. So right now, I think team harmony and team continuity is arguably more important than making sure you discover the next big thing that you then put on the bike that isn't so good and the next big thing gets mad at you and leaves somewhere else. Raul Fernandez. On, on the latter point, I agree completely. Um, team harmony should be what they're actually trying to build at the minute because this is not a situation that you're going to get out of by churning through riders on a... you know. On, on a yearly basis as essentially because we're going to you know now see two new riders at tech three for the second year in a row um but on, on your former point i think actually the two situations are more like than you think because the only difference from what i see without being too in tune with the f1 side of things the only difference is that ktm haven't found a verstappen yet yeah but they might and they will. They might, but they haven't yet. But that's that's the difference. Yeah, it's not that you know, you know, Red Bull and F one went through this phase before Verstappen came along of doing similar, without finding the talent to, you know, go all the way. Yeah, I mean, the first kind of Red Bull placed driver in in hard tax, Val Christian Clean in a Jaguar. Yeah, but it was, you know, just a couple of years later, they got Sebastian Vettel in four world titles. So it worked. Yes, Seb came from BMW, but yeah. Not but, really. No, he came from... Okay, okay. They, yeah. they were both. Okay, it was wait, a joint wait. thing. Stop, <laughs> Moody. This is a bike podcast. Stop it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but that. But my point is that... the, the and, and just to put, put things into Simon's correct point, the KTM project is much younger compared with the Red Bull car project, which is probably 15 years old, if my mind's... No, it's longer than that. It's longer than that. Anyway... We 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 that it they will hit on a good rider one day, it, but that unknowing of when, well, 
Oh dear, who's going to win the lottery and when? It's it's kind of like that. I I don't know if they will hit upon a good writer because I don't know if they're going to find someone. They don't just need a good writer. They don't need a great writer at the minute. They need a truly exceptional writer. They need a Mark Marquez who's capable of getting on a dog of a bike and winning. So so they don't even, it's not even that they need a good writer given the state of the current bike. They need even better than that um, because they've got more problem than just the writer on the machine. Absolutely. They have a really good writer. Brad Binder has been really good this season. I don't think there's a He's there. not Mark Marquez good. Who the hell is? Fabio Quattararo. <laughs> Absolutely. But the project is so much younger and it's not it's not just about getting the young the 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 the, the super duper mega stellar rider. What happens if they find another Gigi Delinia and they get him into Matikoffen? What happens if they get Delinia? All of those kind of things will make the project go faster. Um Yes, but by chasing superstar riders right now, they're they're putting the cart in front of the donkey. Because it's the easiest thing to do. Because arguably there are less stellar engineers and and technical directors in on two wheels than there are riders. Because as I've said, I keep yes. saying there are too many riders trying to get into MotoGP. There's not enough stellar technicals uh, to make the package go faster. Simon's nodding. He's agreeing. I'm winning. <laughs> Now he's laughing. <laughs> I didn't realize we were fighting, Toby. No, 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 that's true. That's true. That's true. Anyway, let's see how that one all pans out between Binder, Gardner, and how Miguel Oliveira gets on with the Aprilia in MotoGP next year. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep. You heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Victorinox, the makers of the original Swiss Army Knife, have been a reliable companion for life's everyday challenges, mastering functionality, innovation, iconic design, and uncompromising quality with its products. The Victorinox Swiss Army Knife provides you with all the things you don't think about until you need it. Tweezers, a screwdriver, and even a corkscrew. With the Victorinox Swiss Army Knife, you can be prepared to master everyday life. You can find Victorinox Swiss Army Knives at Dick's Sporting Goods. Regarding who's going to go where in 2023 on the MotoGP grid, uh, Raul Fernandez, he is, well, the bottom points scorer so far in 2022 with Tech 3, with KTM. Um, the whole thing, it just hasn't worked, has it, Simon? No. Um, and I think that as much as I hate to say it, because I think he's super, super, super talented, there is a point where you have to wonder if, if Fernandez has pushed it too far to the point where he's going to be seen as damaged goods. Because I think the number one problem he's fighting at the minute is not the fact that the KTM is quite hard to ride. It's the fact that he's being quite petulant about not wanting to be there, which is something that when you speak to other teams in the paddock about his Moto3 days, he has a history of doing, of, of kind of mentally checking out halfway through a season because he doesn't care for the project anymore um that's what it looks like because he is as good as remy gardner if not better than remy gardner based on the latter half of last year's season maybe yeah. not better but faster than talent remy is gardner. higher yeah exactly say, yeah. and yet he's just cruising around at the back of the grid at the minute and, and is whenever we speak to him afterwards isn't too upset by the fact that he's cruising around at the back of the grid and like, I, I understand why a team like RNF Aprilia would take a bet on him because he'll probably come considerably cheaper than he would have last year, even if he is going to have to find a way to pay himself out of half a KTM contract, which, from what it sounds like, he's going to do by basically not getting paid for the last half of this season. Um, But there's a risk in taking him because what happens if he does the same thing again? What happens if the thing doesn't click again, what happens if it doesn't work again? Yeah. Um, that that team have obviously been aiming for him since before they knew they were going to Aprilia. Let's not forget that his Moto Rookie 
Moto 2 season runner-up finishing crew chief is on Darren Binder's side of the garage at RNF for next for this season and will most likely be you know they'll be trying to retain him so that Fernandez comes into an environment where he knows someone that he's happy with but yeah it's it's a bad, it's it's a risky strategy taking him at this point I think I really do like like Maverick Vinales I would describe this as a money ball signing which is that you pick up damaged goods damaged because of something not related to peak pure performance but something else and you try to make sure you you win on the margins by getting it right um I, well i'm gonna be a bit pro rider here i don't know that i like how this whole Raul fernandez situation has gone but man i also don't know what you'd expect when you bring in a guy who does not want to ride for you what, what like how is that going to work how is that going to be a, a happy ending the first adversity that happens and he remembers why he didn't want to ride for you and for fernandez the adversities came he got hurt uh, in the preseason, I think, got hurt yeah, right away. Indonesia. Yeah, very seriously. Maybe at that point already he realized that he doesn't like the bike very much, that the bike spits people off, and that there's a chance in a project that he does not believe in to hurt his career long term, not by not putting in the effort, but by hurting yourself. I, it's it's a tough one. Uh, I. He has been a disappointment to KTM. He has been a disappointment performance-wise, but the good thing about MotoGP is I think you're only as good as your last race. And if he comes into he comes into RNF and he's immediately good on the RSGP, and I think he can be because the talent is so clearly there, then I think we'll just treat 22, uh, 23 as his rookie season and forget all about 22. I mean, remember, Fabio Quartararo has damaged good ones. And now he's the best rider in MotoGP by an enormous margin. I'm not saying Raul Fernandez will be the best rider in MotoGP by an enormous margin, but I'll, I'll, I, I say things will be forgiven very quickly if it turns out he's good on the RSGP. I uh, read the other day, and I didn't realize it until the other day, that Pitt Byra uh, at KTM said, we even gave a ride to his brother to help him. They did do that, yes, in Moto3. Oh, yeah, yeah, that was... They chucked someone out of Tech 3. And I read that and I thought, you've had everything on a plate. You cheeky little what's it. You've, had, you've not only got a ride for yourself, you've had a ride for your bro. You've got to be professional. It doesn't matter. Like uh, Chelsea offered... Oh, God, I'm going into Chelsea. Okay, so <laughs> Chelsea gave roles to basically the entirety of That's Eden Hazard. That's a football team, by the way. Yeah. The entirety of our star player, Eden Hazard's extended family, basically played for Chelsea at one point, and it did not stop him from leaving for Real Madrid, which was his dream dream team. There's only so much you can do on the margins. And the KTM RC16 is not that good a bike right now, and Fernandez didn't want to be there to begin with. So you can, you can try to sweeten it as you want, but he's... You're not going to make him feel indebted to you, and they couldn't do it. Uh, and let's not forget that that whole giving his brother a ride thing was a sweetener for, you know, if we're talking about unprofessional behavior, for the fact that they announced that he was going to ride their MotoGP bike halfway through a session in an attempt to play a power move against Yamaha. Like, it, the, profession, the lack of professionalism here didn't start with Fernandez, even if it's ending with him. Um, but if he does go to Aprilia for next year, th- there is one trump card that I honestly, I think that Massimo Rivola can play based on the fact that even if he's riding at Razlan Rosales or an F team, he'll be in a factory contract. And that's that basically Rivola needs to do what he's already done to fix a broken rider. And he needs to take Raul Fernandez and said, okay, Alicia Spagaro, you're adopting this kid. He's yours now. And because that's what worked with Maverick. And basically he needs to kind of, they, they really need to, use their assets and use Alesh and Maverick as kind of big brothers to yeah. him and, and get his head squared away because they have the ability. And remember, before before Maverick became an option, Raul Fernandez was a, a top wish list item for Alesh when it came to Aprilia. Yes. Alesh openly spoke about wanting somebody like Raul Fernandez, read Raul Fernandez on the other RSGP after a bunch of other people rejected it. I think he'll, he won't mind, assuming, assuming Raul approaches this in the right mind frame, because there's only, there's only so far the benefit of the doubt goes. 
I do have to admit. Mm. Uh, we mustn't forget back in the midst of time that Maverick Vinales, when he was on a Moto3, he got into a huff when we got to Malaysia and he jumped on a plane on a Friday and went home. He had technically a chance of winning the championship if everybody crashed and he won the remaining mm -hmm. Grand Prix. But once it worked for Vinales, it worked. And there is so much of a cookie-cutter carbon copy here with Raul, then if it's got right, then wow, stand back, everybody. But somebody's got to unlock it. And maybe, as you say, that's a riveler thing. I think it's worth a punt. I, I mm. yeah. Interesting, interesting. It's it's certainly going to be more worth a punt for Aprilia signing him as damaged goods than for KTM to force him into another year of a contract. Completely. Spot on. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. Okay, then. Right. Who else might uh, be in and around MotoGP coming up from Moto2 in 2023? Ayagura replacing Taka Nakagami. Do you think Agura is better now than Nakagami was when he left Moto2? Simon's nodding the best. Yeah. I'm going to go with him first. He was winning races. He's winning races. Exactly. Taka never did that. He's leading the, the championship race, I think, out of out of Rebel Ring. So, yeah. Short conversation. Next subject. <laughs> but it, it sounds like he's not coming to MotoGP all of a sudden, at least this year. Uh, Simon's so clearly there's still a lot of uncertainty over that. But I, I think some of the uncertainty comes from Agura. Right. Who keeps saying, I am not ready for MotoGP. I'm concentrating on Moto2 whenever he's asked about it. Literally, that's like the it words that he rolls out every time. Which is what all of them say. Um, Always. Yeah, well, yeah but, but this is, yeah, but it's what most of them say. But with Agura, you've got like an even more indecipherable character than 99% of, of bike racers. He is the, the sort of the Japanese stereotype of, you know, there's there's an old story about him winning a race in Red Bull Rookies, or uh, not Asian Town Cup, sorry, and, and uh, the photographer asking him to give a thumbs up afterwards to the photograph and he refused because the guy that was he was fighting for the win had fallen off so it wasn't an honorable victory oh. he is very japanese in his ways and um yeah and and that's that kind of comes through where i think some people are reading too much into what he's saying right now whereas the reality is that he's just saying nothing at all um, and the fact that on the other side, uh, you know, Stefan Bradle is talking about what a great addition Takanakagami would make to the Honda testing lineup kind of hints that there has been some sort of an internal conversation about, about Taka going there to, to work on the RC213 and, and, and trying to make it better, which is also something that Bradle, you know, Bradle has been complaining about. Basically, he hasn't been a test rider for three years. He's been a racer again and he hates mm -hmm. it. And he wants to test. He wants to make the bike better, and they can't do it. Yeah. What better way than to add tack into that mix? Um, especially when they have this this fast, hot shot, you know, kid on the way up. And he's a Honda rider. He is Honda backed. He rides for a Honda team. He's on a Honda contract. He'll be riding a Honda next year. He'll do whatever he's told. Uh, correct. Uh, talking about Honda, who is going to be on the Repsol Honda next year? Who's going to go first? Don't fight. Don't step on each other's toes. Join me. <laughs> uh, Stefan Bradl. Who's <laughs> <laughs> Stefan Bradl? Uh, when are we going to get that confirmed? Did we get, have, you got, have you had a sniff? Um, I think we'll find out at Mizano. That's, the, that's the, kind of the, the rumors. Um, it seems like, uh, so it, to his utmost credit, it seems like a large part of the delay is the fact that Joan Mir wants to take his crew with him because they've all lost their jobs because Suzuki are pulling out, but he doesn't want to take his crew with him at the expense of people at Honda losing their jobs because he's a good person and he, he wouldn't do that. And it, it's kind of trying to find places for everyone that's sorting it. There are also, which probably complicates matters further, there are rumors perpetually circulating around about Alberto Puja's future about the fact that apparently Honda are talking to Livio Supo about rejoining as Suzuki goes as well, about the fact that apparently they're trying to lure Davide Brivio back from F1 to potentially take over. So it could be that, uh, again, Paco Sanchez, the, the man that's negotiating Remy Gardner's future, doesn't really know who he's supposed to talk to at the minute because there's a bit of flux going on within the team. But the fact that Mir isn't looking anywhere else for a ride 
makes me think that, that you know, we're, we're talking about a contract not being signed here, but there's a letter of agreement that has been signed that there's intent on paper somewhere because he sounds too comfortable about his future for that not to be the case. Livio wasn't treated well by HRC at the end of 2017. I'll be very, very, very... I, I don't think anyone has ever been treated well by HRC at the end of their tenure there. Well, I don't want to give away confidences, but... <laughs> No, it wasn't pretty. Yeah, but but you know, have have the same conversation with Danny Pedrosa and ask him how he was treated at the end of his time there. Should have been faster. Would have been no problem then. I'm sorry. It's just I I just remember the KTM argument that you know KTM obviously loves to jab at Honda and and vice versa. And I remember KTM pointing out how Honda didn't treat Petro- Pedrosa right and how. He was going to be a proper part of the KTM family now, and we'll take care of him. And it's just, it's just wonderful to recall that amid what's going on I with mean, Remy Gardner. You say that, you say that, but he is uh, more a part of the KTM family than Iker Lacona, Danilo Petrucci, Remy Gardner, Raúl Fernández, <laughs> no, <laughs> Miguel okay. Oliveira, on Paul Espargaro. On that particular point, they <laughs> delivered, but in a wider. Yeah, yeah. yeah that, 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 but being serious, it is a. Uh, a very pertinent subject as to who is going to be the team principal, team manager. And there is a difference, and there is a big difference, in HRC Factory next year. Uh, Pooch, has, Pooch has had a long time there, and here and now it's going wrong. So... Do we have a listener question coming yes, up? Yes, we that? do. So let's. Okay. Let me do the script, Val. Back in your box. My my friend and fellow journalist, Lavio Lopez, or Lucho Lopez, made a really good point uh, last week when Mark Marquez returned and posted the pictures of himself meeting all the crew in the garage and whatever. And uh, there's a, a guy, I think his name is Unkini-san. He's one of the Repsol Honda engineers. He's the project leader for the RC213V. And there was, out of the four pictures that Marquez posted, there was two of the two of them, sort of hugs, handshakes, whatever. There was no pictures of Takeo Yokoyama, who is the, the HRC technical boss, which, you know, if, if anyone's head is on the chopping block right now, it's his and, and probably Alberto Pujo's as well. And and maybe that was just a little indicator that times are changing. But Marquez and Pooja are still probably fairly tight, I'd imagine. Just out of out yes. of everything that's been going on and how how their wow. tenure together has played out. There there was there was always a resentment within the well, within the Emilio Azamora side of the Marquez camp, which is obviously now not a part of the Marquez right. camp, but there was always a tension there that uh, it was Pooja's side of the whole setup that had pushed Marquez into a return too soon and caused all of the subsequent injury problems. So I don't know if there's a bit of a tarnish on the relationship between him and Marquez or not now, but it could be expected that there was one. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. We've got some listeners' questions, and we've got three of them coming up. First off, we're going East Coast. Hey, gentlemen. Aaron from Western Connecticut. I really appreciate the show. It has helped me tremendously over the last couple of years to understand the sport, both on and off the track. Being able to get the nuances from the inside of the paddock is a really great asset to me, since I cannot be there myself. Quick question, and apologies if you feel like you've answered this before. Why is MotoGP slash Dorna not willing to have another satellite team on the grid and is holding out for a factory one? Surely if Yamaha wanted to have a new satellite team, and I'm sure they would considering how well the current one is doing, please no sarcasm there, but if they did, wouldn't that be great for the sport to have another two bikes line up and give more riders opportunity in the premier class? Thanks again. I'll hang up now and look forward to hearing your response. Hi, Aaron. Uh, thanks for the question. I think the simple answer is because there's a, a certain sum of prize money that has to be doled out. And 
it would be diluted by the addition of an extra satellite team. If you're, I'm going to make another F1 reference, so forgive me again, but if you remember the current consternation about Andretti wanting to join the F1 grid and most of the F1 grid going, no thanks, it's about that. And this is also about that. And it's a point where you have diminishing returns, which means that, you know, if the grid is 20 or 22 or 24 bikes, it doesn't, doesn't make that big a difference to the show, to where you would actively take a loss to add two more bikes. Yeah, it's, I think it's even simpler than that, um, in that Dorna are contractually obliged to pay out big chunks of cash to uh, manufacturers. They or to sorry to send independent teams. Uh, if you're an independent team, you get a fee from Dorna for just for turning up, which we think is probably about two point two million euros a rider, plus a little bit of extra in terms of logistical costs and stuff like that. Factory teams don't get that, so essentially by holding out for another factory team instead of. Uh, Instead of a satellite team, Dorna save four million pounds, four million euros a season. It's it's a straight up business decision. There is a whisper that there's another factory interested. Um, there's a a rumor float, or there was a rumor floating around at the start of the, not the start of the season, but a little bit earlier in the season, sort of before the summer break, that uh, a certain blue and white badged German brand might actually be once again showing a little bit of interest in making a MotoGP return. But the seems to have gone a bit cold over recent weeks um, from sort of speaking to people on the inside. So let's see. But, you know, Doina did say at the time of the announcement that Suzuki were pulling out that they had interest from other parties. And we kind of said, yeah, there's no way there's another factory wants to come in right now. Um, but if BMW have expressed some interest, then that is certainly a reason to keep a grid spot open for them. But a factory team isn't going to appear in MotoGP in six months. Um, it, there's like a, an 18-month, two-year lead time in that. So it, it'll be, you know, it might be a case of we'll get an announcement in the middle of 2023 that they're joining in 24 or something like that. But it won't happen any sooner. It took me an embarrassing amount of time to figure out what the white and blue German brand was. I just should say really bad on my part. Because Germany's so well known for its masses of motorcycle manufacturers. <laughs> If I was thinking it was MZ coming back. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Uh, the other thing is, uh, remember that we are two bikes down for next year. So it's only money that they would have paid this year. So as you say, Simon, just to reiterate, they are uh, doing a quids in by 4.4 if nobody else comes in. The other thing that I thought you were going to mention is, um, just to answer you, Aaron, is, well, Yamaha might not want to supply two more bikes. Yamaha have never really felt like they wanted to supply two more bikes. You know, this has been the, the like the reason they've done it a long time, Simon. Yeah, they've done but, it a lot, but, they've done but it for what they've done, what they've done for so over the course of the last fifteen years, what we've seen is a transformation in the relationship between factory and satellite team from customer to partner. That hasn't happened at Yamaha. Their satellite teams have always remained customers. And there's resentment from that, both from Hervé Poncheral and from Raslan Rosali. That's why both of them have left Yamaha, because they were treated as customers and not as, as partners. Um, so I think Yamaha, maybe they haven't openly said we're not interested in providing a, a, a two more bikes, but they've kind of subconsciously done it for 20 years and, and they're paying the price for that. But you'd think there's an organization on the grid that would that they would make an exception for in terms of the the closeness of the partnership you say that but the organization in the grid that you're talking about uh, a team run by a certain italian who did quite well in a yamaha in previous years with the big 46 in the front of it you know they're scoring podiums on the ducatis they they are not interested in tearing up the deal they've got to to go there absolutely plus, yeah, it's, it's, it's a plus longer term do, thing does any manufacturer in MotoGP really want a satellite partner team, their, their only satellite partner team who exclusively picks riders from a very small pool of Italians? It's a good pool. But yeah, yeah I see what you mean. Maybe the best politician in the MotoGP paddock for the last 12 months is Lynn Jarvis. Maybe Yamaha wanted to pull out and he saved MotoGP and kept two bikes in. I would say you're crazy, Toby. They've just won the championship, but Suzuki. My point, I rest my case. 
maybe the, the the sacrificial lamb was two satellite yams. I've 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 said it before and I'll say it again. Lynn Jarvis should have uh, been the person tasked with delivering the UK's Brexit policy. <laughs> he is the best politician in the paddock. The man's a genius. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, we may never know until his book in 10 years' time. Uh, thank you, Aaron. Next up, we've got another question regarding Honda. Hey, Tony Valen-Simon. It's Eric from Detroit. Two questions for you. Uh, first, about this downturn with Honda. Um, do you think it has more to do with Alberto Puig taking over from Livio Supo, or does it have to do with Nakamoto being retired slash rotated out of HRC? Just thoughts on that. Second one has to do with alternative front ends. Being that uh, Michelin won't have a new tire till, well, they say, what, 23, but it's probably 24, 25, uh, they can't apparently fly tires in overnight and produce them overnight, nor do they still have the truck that produces them off-site you know, right outside the track to, to make up some cool stuff overnight. Um, I'm wondering if alternative front ends have a chance at coming back here because the current tires are so overstressed with the braking forces uh, and the speeds and the aero um, that an alternative front end might be able to uh, mitigate that some. Uh, looking for your thoughts. I'm sure the answer to the second one is no, but there you go. Thanks. Thanks, Eric. Uh you may well have heard earlier in our podcast, we touched on a bit of HRC and how things have shaken out over the last four or five years or so. Um, has it gone down after Nakamoto? Not necessarily. Has it gone down with Alberto Pooch? Not necessarily. But it has in the last two years off a cliff because they've lost Mark. Yeah, it's just the Mark injury, isn't it? I don't think there's one person... Like, if if there's a one-person transformational effect in MotoGP, then it, I think it's either the rider or the uh, chief designer. I really, I really struggle to see how a team manager, like, that's the part where you get into marginal gains. And we can, we can talk about how well or poorly Alberto's done, but, but it's, it's not, it's not him. That's, that's, that's changed it. Again, regardless of whether he's done well or poorly. And also, Eric, I should say I'm very fond of your state's uh, terrible NFL team. Go Jared Goff and Dan Campbell. How many sports can we get into this podcast? <laughs> uh, I, I demand a cricket reference. Um, they, uh, <laughs> we haven't actually talked about cycling today, which is quite unusual for us. Cycling. Um, yeah. we, uh, Eric, thanks for the, thanks for the question. Um, regarding alternate front ends, um, I think... If you took a, an engineer and showed them a MotoGP bike right now, they'd like who'd never seen a, a motorbike before, they'd probably ask why you've only got a swing arm set up at the front or at the back and not at the front as well, because in theory that probably makes the most sense. Um, especially, you know, now with, with the way that the tires are being overloaded and the forces being put through it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the the problem that we have or the problems we have um, one is easily addressed, I guess, but the other isn't. The, the easily addressed one is that we have a control tire that's built for front forks, and you're never going to get full performance out of that doing something differently, like a, a front telelever swing arm setup, like like some people have experimented with in the past. But the other thing is we've got riders who've spent their entire careers racing bikes with front forks that move up and down as you brake and accelerate, and, and they understand the feel from them. And the only, you know, I think if you were going to build a MotoGP bike that had a front swing arm set up, you'd probably have to start by building a Moto3 bike that had one and taking a rider through their entire learning career on that and then a Moto2 bike and then a MotoGP bike. And, um, because it's, it's a completely alien way of riding that just people, from what we've seen in the past, whenever others experimented with it, like the, the Elf Honda or um, Bermuda played with it in Moto2 in the Spanish Championship, but it was so alien to the riders that they couldn't make it work properly. Um, and I think that's the kind of the fundamental problem to the whole, the whole thing. I'd love to know what Honda have tried and put in the skip, but we'll never know. We'll never know. You, you know that the, all these guys have, have at least, there's been like computer models built of all of this, hasn't there? Everyone's tried all this stuff. Of course they have. Of course they have. They're trying to find the arc. 
Exactly. Let's get away from technical and let's just talk about uh, one rider that I think, uh, to steal Val's line, we're all in agreement we support on this podcast. Let's hear from Ewan. Hey guys, absolutely love the podcast and all the writing on the website. Uh, my name is Ewan, I'm from Edinburgh, Scotland, um, though I'm actually originally from Perth, Scotland, which is where Rory Skinner is also from, and my question is related to him. Seeing as he's now had two um, wildcard weekends in Moto2 with American racing, how do you rate his chances progressing to the MotoGP paddock in future, or do you think that he needs to spend a little bit more time in British Superbikes before he can make that switch? Thanks. Hey Ian, uh, thanks for the the question. Um, I know Perth well. I spent six years just up the road in Dundee um, at university, so I know the area and I know the Skinners quite well as well. Um, and honestly, now that he's got two decent, solid, steady Moto Two finishes under his belt, um, I think Ray Skinner's already spent too long in British Superbikes and should be doing everything in his power to get a, a Moto Two ride for next season. Um, he's he's in a, a good position because there is a huge impetus to put a Brit back into MotoGP um, and obviously Jake Dixon is, is delivering this year and looks like he will be the next one to get the opportunity to go up on a full time basis but that's at least a year away because he's not going to get a MotoGP ride for 2023 so if Rory can come in deliver for two years, deliver for 23 uh, in his rookie season, start looking strong in 24. He'll still only be super young because he's still only a baby. Um, and there's a there's a, good, a really good opportunity for him. I for, you know, I really highly rate him. I think he's supremely talented, even if it's gone a bit missed in the MotoGP talent after, or in the MotoGP paddock after a, a bit of a sort of rocky British talent cup uh, road to where he is now. But you know, I, I couldn't agree more that he deserves it, and fingers crossed we get to see it soon. Yeah, it's a. I mean, I don't want to be too categorical, but obviously he's not going from British Superbikes to MotoGP directly. Not happening. Doesn't happen anymore. Only happens the other way around. Um, but yeah, he's got time on his side. He's was six years younger than Dixon. He's only two years older, I think, than Scott Agden. So there's there's a place there for him and. He probably does become next in line if the Jake Dixon thing doesn't work out. Uh, but it's also it's just just too early to say. You can't guarantee, I think, Moto2 success. Like, he's been fine in his two Moto2 appearances, but I don't, I don't really know how much they say in terms of his ultimate potential in that class. The, the best thing about his two performances are that he had two solid rides. He beat his permanent teammate, Shondo and Kelly, in one of them. And he's 20 years old. Um, so all of those work in his favor. You know, he, his, the, the, the biggest, no, not even the biggest threat. I was going to say the biggest threat to his possible progression, uh, but that's not the right way of wording it. Um, we're actually in a position where we might go quite a while without seeing a British rider in MotoGP. And then we're going to have two at once because there's, you know, I, I rate Scott Ogden really highly as well. He's doing great things in a rookie Moto3 season, he's in that Grand Prix pipeline um, but the two are roughly equivalent in terms of age, in terms of when they're going to be looking to hit Moto2 and seeing the two of those arrive in MotoGP at the same time isn't unrealistic at all. And if, if, if anything, if there's like a really big need then they should borrow from other sports and do the thing where you hand out a passport to somebody from, from another country, like, you know, make Alonso Lopez a bread. British Alonso Lopez and MotoGP. Let's let's go. Well, I'll I'll cap off the uh, Rory Skinner conversation. He's he's very marketable. He's great in front of a camera, and he's beyond a lovely bloke. He, you know, he, that will carry him through to even when he's retired and he's hung his crash helmet up. What a great guy. Okay, thanks you guys to have sent in your voice messages, podcasts at the-race.com. Please send them in to our email and Simon, Val and myself, Toby, we will listen to them, pull them out and answer them on air. We've now still got Mizano, Aragon, Mategi, Thailand, Phillip Island, Sepang and Valencia still to go in MotoGP for 2022. Starting off with Mizano this weekend. Keep in touch with the-race.com. From Val, Simon and myself, Toby, speak to you all after the organised chaos 
of Misano. The Athletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.